Peter, if you'd like to come up, I'm going to do a little short interview with him. Now, Peter doesn't realise this, but um, a few years ago, when I had the great joy and privilege to uh, do some uh, theological training, uh, I remember being in Peter's class, and um, there was this moment where, in, 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 if you go to Bible college, there are people who like to test the lecturers out, you know, just... Um, and there was this moment, where, and it wasn't me, by the way, just clarifying. Uh, <coughs> And there was this moment where uh, someone asked a particular question on a particular theological topic, and I remember sitting there, and I thought, oh, I wonder what Peter's going to say. And Peter did his thing that he does where you ask him a question, and he's not very quick at rushing to the answer. So he sat back, closed his eyes, and thought. And you could just feel the, what's he going to say? He just said one sentence, pointed everyone to Christ and the gospel, he, I mean, I know that he could have totally, is losing sort of um, a language I use called schooled that person on what is true, but he chose to be gracious and humble. And that really shaped my view on what it means to grow in Christ and be humble. I've had the great joy to serve alongside with Peter on a few things. Um, Peter, how, how long have you been here in Australia? Like, when was, because I know a little bit about your history. Well, I was born in Australia, so I, I came here at the age of, 21. No? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Okay. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Yes. I was born at a very early age. Yeah, nice. Yeah, that's, right. that's right. In Australia. In Australia. Yeah, that's Wonderful. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm Shabu, by the way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, we shared a little bit earlier where Keith and Mark shared, particularly Keith, how he came to know the Lord. What was it for you? Was it a journey, a moment? Uh, well, my parents weren't Christians. Um, I was at school, as you had to be in those days, uh, and I had a teacher who wasn't a Christian, but his father had been a Christian, and occasionally he talked about his father and his father's values, and I was so overwhelmed by that that I went home and said to my parents, I want to go to church every Sunday. Mm. So I never met his father, but his witness shone through his unbelieving son. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Well, the church I went to was not tremendously helpful, <laughs> I might say, uh, and I was a very slow learner, but five years later, uh, going to church every Sunday, five years later I became a Christian. That's right. Um, during the times of not writing, what are some of the things that you love doing? You've got a couple of special friends, two friends. Oh, little, little furry friends, yes. yes. They're, they're called dogs. Yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah. But when I'm, when I'm walking them on the dog-free beach, they're called French fluffy penguins. Okay. Uh, yeah. and, and if the person asks me why they've got dog leads, I say, well, I went to the penguin shop and they didn't have any penguin leads. So okay. I, now, I don't do that. I don't. <laughs> but I, I do have two small dogs. Okay, wonderful. Uh, Bertie and Beatrice. Yeah. Uh, I love music, classical music. Uh, so I play the piano and play the pipe organ and so forth. I like reading, catching up with friends, and doing nothing in particular. Yeah. I really enjoy that. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Um, I know that you've written a few uh, books. Uh, is there something that you're currently working on? Uh, yes, uh, uh, my commentary on Hebrew has just been republished, so second edition is out, which is lovely. And I'm working on a book on preaching mm. at present, because the best way to learn to do something is to write a book on it. Mm. 
Okay. I'll take I'll take note of that. Yep. Sure. It's good. Um, well, we want to love to hear from you. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite John first to do the Bible reading, and then we're going to hear from Peter to preach the word. Thanks. Uh, Peter has very kindly agreed to play Bach's fugue for us on the piano before his. <laughs> Not, not today. Okay, right on. Hey, we're going to be reading um, uh, chapter 25, 26, 27 of Exodus, except we're not. We're only going to read one of those chapters. We're going to read chapter 25, and there's a lot of instructions. And sometimes it's one of those ones where you go, oh man, instruction, instruction, instruction. What I'm going to encourage you to do as I read just chapter 25 is to actually concentrate and see if you can get in your mind what this looks like. That might help when it comes uh, to hearing from Peter in a moment. So I'm just going to be reading from chapter 25, which is headed Contributions for the Sanctuary. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned rams, skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Then it's headed the Ark of the Covenant. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length. Get this in your mind. A cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a moulding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall take a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make a two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from beyond the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Next little bit's headed, the table for bread. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits shall its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a moulding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around its handbreadth, wide, and a moulding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence of the table before me regularly. 
in the last section is called the gold lampstand. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its words that spelt C-A-L-Y-X-E-S and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it and three branches of the lampstand out the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand... And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyx, if that word's not right, I've said it wrong a lot of times, and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold and see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Let me pray for Peter as he comes to speak to us. Lord God, your servant Peter has been preaching your word for a long time and I pray that this morning as he comes to us you'll renew him through your Holy Spirit, that you'll give him strength in his body and in his mind and that your spirit might speak to us through the words that you have given him to bring to us this morning. We ask this in the precious name of our Saviour, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Pete. Thanks so much, Will. It's great to be with you uh, today. A great delight to be back here uh, and preaching. And you're not meant to have, if you're a preacher, you're not meant to have favourite books of the Bible, but actually this is one of mine, so uh, it's a great delight and I'm so pleased you're working through Exodus. You can have the first slide, please. Uh, Let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And all the instructions you've just heard are to achieve this sanctuary These are God's words that God may dwell among them. So I want you to remember these words because they're the key to this section of Exodus indeed uh, from chapter 25 to chapter 40 uh, and they're the key to this sermon as well. It's easy to get lost in the detail, isn't it? But you have to know the big picture. Okay. You're making a cake. Uh, I once made a pavlova like this and I had all the ingredients, a long list of ingredients and so on and I got them all out and got them on the thing and got them ready and then realised that the only vinegar I had was garlic vinegar. (laughs) I thought, well, it's only a dash, it won't make much difference. (laughs) Well, I produced this beautiful pavlova. I mean, it looked, it was elegant. Well, actually, it wasn't very elegant, but it was a pavlova, certainly, And it tasted like a pavlova, but the aftertaste uh, for every mouthful was pure garlic. (laughs) And my English friends, who I was trying to impress them with vintage Australian food, they were very rude about it. And it was 40 years ago, but they still remind me of it. (laughs) But let's keep the big picture. Here is God saying, 
let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Actually, these words are so important, I want you to say them with me. Let's say them together. Let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now, when you see the word sanctuary, you probably think something like a bird sanctuary. Well, the purpose of a bird sanctuary is to keep the birds safe. But this is not that kind of sanctuary. Sanctuary here means a holy place. Have them make for me a holy place that I may dwell among them. God is a holy God, so if God is going to live among his people, he needs a holy place in which to live, a place set apart for him. Let them make for me a sanctuary a holy place that I may dwell among them. Now, uh, here's a neat summary of Exodus. If we could have the next slide, please. Uh, Reading through Exodus, we have this idea of God coming down. Uh, Chapter 3, I have come down to deliver them. That is the message, really, of chapters 1 to 18. Then in chapter 19, we have the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to speak speak to his people and make a covenant with them. Uh, That's chapters 19 to 25. And then the rest of the book, have them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And the climax of the book is in the last few verses. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, that is the sanctuary. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Wherever the cloud was taken up, the people would set out throughout all their journeys. So here's the big picture of Exodus. One, God comes down to deliver. Two, God comes down to speak. And three, God comes down to live among his people, have them that I may dwell among them. Now, just remember this. God could come down and rescue and then go away again, couldn't he? God could come down to speak and then go away. But the purpose of the coming down to rescue and the purpose of the coming down to speak was because he wanted to come and live among his people. This is so important because the big picture is of God who makes the journey. God who makes the journey to rescue. Comes down to rescue the people from Egypt. God comes down to speak to them in their language. Language they can understand. But the climax of it is God comes down to live among his people. Now, uh, after the service today... Uh, there's a possibility that I might say to you, uh, well, I'd like to come and live with you if that's all right. (laughs) I've got two dogs uh, and a piano and lots of books, uh, but, you know, if I could move perhaps in the next week to come and live with you, would that be all right? Could you give me some space? And I'm going to stay with you forever. (laughs) Would you like that? No, you wouldn't like that, no. Uh, But at least you know I was serious about getting to know you, wouldn't you? That I actually cared about you. 
I wanted to live with you. That's pretty significant, isn't it? And that's exactly what God says. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. What did this sanctuary look like? Next slide, if we may. Thank you. There in the centre is the tabernacle. It's a very complicated diagram, but it's, it'll do the, do the thing. If you look around the edge of the diagram, you'll see the name of the 12 tribes. So what's happening is that God's people are at Sinai, and they're going to go on a camping trip towards the Holy Land. And God has the biggest tent, and that's in the middle. Whenever they get to the end of a journey, end of a day's journey, God, God's tent is put up, and then God's people, the 12 tribes, gather around God in their little tents. So here's the picture that God actually wants to live in the center of his people. The word tabernacle means a dwelling place, uh, we've seen it called a sanctuary, that is a holy place. It's also called the tent of meeting in these chapters. Now, you may think it's a bit complicated having the one uh, thing called a, a dwelling place, a sanctuary, and a tent of meeting, but just think about your own home or your own flat. What is it? It's a place where you live. It's a place also where your friends come. It's uh, maybe if you're working from home, it's a workplace as well. Well, certainly lots of work is done at home, whether it's paid or not. Lots of cleaning. I spent yesterday cleaning a room. It's lots of work, isn't it? But your home might also be a prayer center for your street, mightn't it? It might be a place where prayer is happening for your street. It might be a safe house. Do people still have safe houses for children who are trying to, is that right, a safe house? Or your house might be an evangelistic centre where people can hum, come and hear about the gospel. So our houses, our homes, uh, have a number of different meanings and functions and purposes. And so that's true of God's dwelling on earth as well. It is the tabernacle as dwelling place it's a holy place, a sanctuary, a holy place, and also a tent of meeting. That is, the purpose of God living among his people is so that he can meet with them. And what he's saying, you see, is please gather round me and follow me on the journey to the Holy Land till we come to the place which is described in Deuteronomy 12, uh, 12, 11, as the place Lord, the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. The tabernacle is inside the Holy Land and then replaced by Solomon's temple. Uh, uh, and when Solomon's dedicating the temple, he says, this place of which you've said, my name will dwell there. So big picture, God is living among his people. So next slide, here's an overview of the Bible. Uh, I love this bit. Uh, the first prayer meeting where God is walking in the garden of the cool of the day and calls the man and the woman to join with him and then they don't come. But anyway, 
Uh, there was God living among his people. And then because of their sin, the Lord God drove the man and the woman out of the garden. So God's here and they're there, out there. Then our verse, let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. But this coming of God to dwell among his people is just a foreshadow, a foretaste of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. The word became flesh, we read in John 1.14, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, just like the glory in the temple, except better because this is glory in a person. So here's the big picture of the Bible, that God wants to come and live among his people, as he did in the Lord Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. And the next bit, please. Uh, and then the idea of the temple changes from a building to us. To, to Jesus' body, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. So the temple we read, the tabernacle we read about in the Old Testament, the temple, is just a visible sign of the Christ to come. Not only that, and very appropriate for Pentecost Sunday, do you not know that you are God's temple? This is the church and that God's spirit dwells within you. So here is God coming to live among us by his spirit. It's always God making the journey, you see. We often think that we have to go on a journey to find God. But no, God is the one who makes the journey. God comes from heaven to earth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we're believers in Jesus, God comes to live in us individually as temples of God's Holy Spirit. And God comes to live in us as a body. Do you not know that you're now God's temple, that God's Spirit lives in you, dwells in you? And then the final story in the Bible is... Listen to this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell among them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So here's the big picture of the Bible. God wants to live among his people. Here's the big picture of the Bible. God makes the journey. God takes the trek. God journeys. God makes it possible to live among his people. We often think that the Old Testament religion is about people trying to find God. No, it was about God finding people. And people often think about Christianity, it's a way to find God. No, it's not. It's the story of God finding us. God making the journey. There was a TV program years ago called The Long Search which was a program about different kinds of religions. And it, it ended, I remember, with about 12, I think, 12, uh, you know, sessions of it. It ended with the person who'd presented it. He'd gone, gone to all these religions. And he said, now, of course, the trouble is you have to find which one is right. Do you know what he did next? He made himself a cup of tea. It was so sweet. <laughs> Such a nice British way of responding to a major question, make a cup of tea. That's right. <laughs> because, of course, he didn't want to say which one was right. But the program was called The Long Search. That is, we have to search for God. But actually, The Long Search was God searching for us. It wasn't that the lost sheep decided, oh, I've lost my shepherd. Where's he gone? I'll go and find him. No. The sheep was lost. 
the shepherd made the journey to find the sheep. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you'll know that's what happened to you. It wasn't that you made a journey and found Christ, but Christ journeyed to find you and to invite you to trust in him. Let's now look at the tabernacle, the holy place. It was a tent, and you can see the tent with its top taken off in the middle. And the tent had around it a kind of courtyard. This was all portable. You could kind of carry it through the wilderness, and every time God stopped on the way through the desert, the people stopped, and every time they stopped, they set this up uh, to remind them that God was present among them. It was, if you like, a, a dwelling place in a tent, uh, which was a tent with a courtyard surrounded with screens, all portable, all, carry, all able to carry them. And within the tent of meeting was the holy place and the most, the most holy place, which was the far end, and then the holy place uh, towards this end. Now, you might think, why are we studying Old Testament architecture? Isn't, isn't life busy enough without worrying about how they built things 3,000 years ago or more? But actually, this architecture is very important. It's, it's a building with a message, an architecture with uh, a, a very important message. Because we read in Hebrews 8.15 that uh, Moses uh, copied what was shown him on the mountain. And we discover in Hebrews that this earthly sanctuary is just a picture of heaven. That the center of heaven, as we know from the book of Revelation, is the throne of God. And this tent, this meeting place, this dwelling place, this sanctuary, had a throne in it. And we're going to read about that now. If we can go to the next slide, please. If you look there, you can see at the far end a kind of box. Uh, the instruction is in, in Exodus 25, have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. This is not, this is not Noah's ark, in case you were wondering. You were thinking, how did they fit all those animals in that very small box? A friend of mine spent the first few years of his Christian life thinking they did actually carry Noah's ark through the wilderness, which must have been... You know, one of the giraffes were feeling a bit queasy <laughs> as they were being carried through the desert. No, this, this is not Noah's ark. Don't think Noah's ark. Think box. There it is, a box. Uh, and this box is no ordinary box. It's the size of a kind of a camphor wood chest or uh, one of those chests that people carry furniture around, I mean, possessions around it when they're move, moving house. Uh, it was actually God's throne on earth. It was just a wooden box, but it was God's throne on earth. 
Psalm 80, verse 1. You who are enthroned between the chair. It was a very humble throne, wasn't it? Most monarchs today have rather more important thrones than that, but that's what it was. But it was made of gold, so it was a special box. You can see there the, uh, the carrying poles. On the top is the mercy seat, and on either end of the top are the two cherubim. And inside are the two stone uh, the copy of the Ten Commandments. Now, why is... Uh, just go back to that slide, if we may, uh, to the box. Let's think about it. Inside are the promises of God, the covenant promises of God, and also God's expectation of his people. The words of God are inside the box. God's sitting on his words. But the top of the box is the mercy seat where the atoning blood was sprinkled once a year for the sins of the people. So God's sitting on mercy as well as on law and covenant. And the two cherubim are pointing to the glory of the presence of God. It's actually a very humble throne, isn't it? In size, oh, it is made of gold, it's precious. But this is where God makes himself present on earth. And I want you to see this as a visible sign of the Christ to come, who would bring the new covenant and who would, by the shedding of his blood, take away the sin of the world who was but a humble carpenter, and yet, as John says, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. So there is God's throne on earth, because this, dwell, this dwelling place is where he makes himself accessible on earth. Then, thank you, there is the table for bread, which is kept there as well. That's a table. It's got bread on it. It's called the bread of the presence. It's a reminder that God is present among his people. And the bread also provides food for the priests who serve in the tabernacle in the sanctuary. There's also a golden lampstand, which is very elegant. It's got calyxes, lots of them, as you can see. Uh, and that's to show that God is present. It's a sign of God's presence because God brings light to this world. Next slide, please. There we have, uh, we've seen the inside of the tent, the dwelling place. Then outside in the courtyard, we can see uh, the altar, the bronze altar. Uh, let me read to you from chapter 27. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, its height shall be three cubits. You'll make horns for it on its four corners. 
You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all utensils of bronze. You'll make a grating, a network of bronze with four rings on its four corners. You shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net uh, extends halfway down the altar. You'll make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, to this is to carry it. Overlay them with bronze. The poles will be put through rings so the poles are on two sides of the altar when it's carried. You'll make it hollow with boards. As it's been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. The altar was a kind of portable barbecue, to be honest. It was a thing on which you, in, in which you lit a fire and then a sacrifice was offered and in some cases it was burnt up in other cases the meat was then shared with the priests. What was the altar for? Leviticus chapter 1. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the tent, uh, back to that slide. Oh, sorry, that's great, thank you. He shall bring it to the tent of meeting, that it may be accepted before the Lord. He'll lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering. It shall be accepted for him to make atonement or a sacrifice for sin for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar. They shall flay the burnt offering and cut it in pieces, put fire on the altar, arrange wood on the fire. The priest shall arrange the pieces. The priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with pleasant aroma to the Lord. So what does this teach us? It teaches us that when God is present, he always provides a means of forgiveness of sin. When God is present, he always provides the means of forgiveness of sin. And this is true when Jesus came, isn't it? When the word became flesh, when God the Son made his great journey from heaven to earth, on the cross he provided a means for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, back to the tabernacle slide, thank you. So here is God living among his people and a means for the forgiveness of their sins as they came to visit God in, in the, in the uh, courtyard with the tent of meeting. Now, as I pointed out, this is a, a kind of portable tent but later on, Solomon built a magnificent temple. You can read about that in 1 Kings 8. That temple was destroyed at the exile. Uh, when they returned from exile, they built a very modest uh, temple to replace it. But then just before the time of Jesus, Herod, who was the local uh, ruler, the Roman ruler, decided to build a magnificent temple, which was the temple we read about in the New Testament. Okay. Let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. What is the problem if God comes to live among his people? Well, here's a very simple problem. How can a holy God live among an unholy people without destroying them? See, people often say to me, you know, I'd like God to appear before me 
If he appeared before me, I should go up and shake his hand and say, how are you? I say, if God appeared before you, you'd be flat on your face in fear because the Lord of the universe, the holy God, the one true God has appeared to you. So how can a holy God live among an unholy people without destroying them? Let's go to the next slide, please. This is, what, this is kind of the picture as I see it. God is saying, gather around me, but don't come right into my presence. As you can come into the court of the tent of meeting, but ordinary people couldn't go inside the holy place, and only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and that was once a year. So God was saying, you know, gather, I want you to, I've come all this way, please gather around, but just keep your distance, lest you get into trouble. Next, you can only approach me by means of a sacrifice, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. So don't think you can waltz into my presence just as you are. No, if you've sinned, you need to bring a sacrifice. That's an animal to sacrifice. And the shedding of that animal's blood will be atonement for you. Furthermore, you can bring the animal, but you can't actually offer the sacrifice. The priests have to do this. So you can come to me, but in a sense, you can, you, you, the, the priests have to be mediators between you and me. I need to keep you at a distance from me. And you can only come into my presence, my, to meet to my throne room in the Holy of Holies in the person of the high priest, the representative I've appointed, and only on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. So God is saying, you know, gather round, but just keep your distance. Not because God might be damaged, but because they might be killed. Now, all this is, as Calvin says, the people being kept in hope by a visible sign of the Christ to come. For all this pointed forward to the coming of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Next slide, thank you. So with that in mind, let's look at these words from Hebrews. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most the holy places by the blood of Jesus, well, that's shocking, isn't it? We have confidence to enter the holy places. How could we do that? Only by the death of Jesus for us. By the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, which covered the center, the, the front of the holy place, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. So Jesus, do you know the, the word which is used most often in the New Testament to describe Jesus is priest? Much more frequent than saviour or redeemer. Isn't that interesting? We have a great priest over the house of God. Let us keep our distance? No. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We often think that being a Christian is a bit like this. God's at one end of the universe and you're at the other. And God says, 
I love you. Have a nice life. I've forgiven you. Stay where you are. It's not like that, is it? God says, not just come to me, but come into my presence. Because I've come to live among you. Now you must come to be with me. There's a wonderful closeness there, isn't there? See, actually, you're, we are closer to God than to anybody else, aren't we? Because we're indwelt by God's Spirit, God is within us, and we come into God's presence by the blood of Jesus through our great high priest. The message of the Old Testament was you had a high priest, a great priest, because you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies and be in God's presence. But this high priest takes us with him. He embraces us and takes us into the presence of God. I remember saying to my uh, stepmother, uh, she, was, she was about to die, and I said, you know, what's going to happen is Jesus will take you, come and take you by the hand and take you into the presence of God. Because actually that's what God, Jesus does all the time, doesn't he? Every time you pray, Jesus takes you by the hand, takes you into God's presence. You may feel that God's a long way away, but actually by the power of Jesus, you have been brought into God's presence. So here's something wonderful. These stories in Exodus 25 to 40 tell us what God does at the time. He gathers his people around him. But they also promise what God will do in the future. Send his son, the word made flesh. We've seen his glory. Glory is the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. So in the Old Testament you have both a present reality and a future hope. The present reality is God lives among his people. The future hope is the word will become flesh and dwell among us, full of grace and truth. The temple is a visible sign of the Christ to come. But actually in the New Testament, in our era, we have the same thing, don't we? Because we know that God does live among us by his spirit. We know that we're a temple of God's Holy Spirit. And we know that we have access to, free access to God at any time, at any place. You can pray anywhere, at any time, can't you? Middle of the night, when you've fallen over, when you're very tired, when you're feeling a long way away from God. No, we have immediate access to the very presence of God through the blood of Jesus. But that, this, this is only also a promise of what is yet to come. Because after Jesus returns, there won't be a temple because God will live among his people. And when Jesus returns, finally, the dwelling place of God is with us, with his people. He will dwell among them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them 
as their God. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. A great gift there in the Old Testament, but a great promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus and a great promise of our future. Not that we find God, but that God finds us and lives and lives and lives with us. Let's praise our God together. Oh, most gracious God, we thank you for your wonderful plan to make a people for yourself and then to live among them. We thank you for this plan foreshadowed and achieved when you came to live among your people in the days of Moses. We thank you for this plan promised and achieved when you came on earth in the person of your son, the word made flesh. And we thank you for this plan promised and that will be achieved when Jesus returns. And we will dwell with you and you will dwell among us forever. We praise you for your faithfulness, your mercy, your compassion, your kindness and your closeness. Amen. <laughs>